All right, good morning, church. I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you. I don't have a lot of energy today. I've had the joy of spending a lot of my morning on my knees. And it wasn't exactly the way um, you would think a pastor would spend his morning on his knees. So, anyway, uh, hopefully uh, we'll get through one more uh, service. And if not, I'll tap out and we'll have an extended time of worship or something. So, uh, bear with me. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance if my energy is just low this morning. So, um, hey, welcome. We are really glad that you're with us. We're in a series called Wrestling with God. And it's a series where. We're appreciating the fact that a life of faith isn't always that easy, and uh, in fact, there are big and tough questions that we wrestle with, and so we're entering that match, so to speak, to wrestle through some of the tough questions that we know actually some of you are asking. So uh, today, uh, we're going to jump into one of the topics that I think I've wrestled with a fair amount, and uh, and that is the topic of hell. So... um, Uh, Let me begin by just telling you about my friend Andrew. Andrew uh, was a high school student uh, in the previous youth ministry I was a part of in the Seattle area. And Andrew uh, had recently embraced Jesus. He was um, a pretty dark and um, critical and cynical kid, but Jesus was beginning to make a difference in his life. And uh, in fact, the witness in the, the the character of his friends lived out in front of him made a big difference for him and uh and like like our group recently we were also on a mission trip and it was there late one night that andrew began to share with me how he felt uh that he was no longer able to be a christian that he felt that uh through a lot of tears he felt that he could not accept that God was a loving Savior if indeed his parents, who had not embraced Christ, uh, would be sent to hell. That hell was the final obstacle for Andrew to faith in Jesus because he couldn't see how a loving God who wanted a relationship with everyone would allow so many people to spend an eternity apart from him. And so for Andrew, hell was proof that Jesus' love was inauthentic and therefore could not command his own allegiance. Now, I can sympathize with Andrew. I can sympathize quite a bit because Andrew was not talking about abstract doctrine. He was talking about real, concrete people that he loved, his own parents. And maybe you can relate to Andrew's agony over the question of hell. And I would suggest to you that if the notion of hell does not create tension for you, I don't know that you actually know God. Um, apologies. Uh, pause for effect. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he has a brilliant chapter on hell in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, that no doctrine, there, there is no other doctrine that he would more willingly remove from Christianity. But, he says, it has the full support of Scripture, and more especially the words of our Lord himself. Lewis goes on and he says that if a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If happiness, if the happiness, Lewis says, of a creature lies in self-surrender, like we heard Corinne saying earlier, that it was actually in surrender to God that she found peace. If, Lewis says, happiness 
the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself. You think about theology kind of like an ecosystem. If you take one species out of the ecosystem, it can disrupt the entire thing and the entire system can collapse. Uh, in the same way, if we pull any one piece of, uh, of theology away from scripture, the whole thing we find is quickly gutted. And so I would submit to you this morning that hell teaches us something of the goodness of Jesus. And if that does not make sense yet, I hope it will by the end. So I also hope I'm still like sitting up at the end. So uh, hell had the last word for my friend Andrew on Jesus. But it was a hell without a context. It was a hell that was a caricature. And I would submit to you today that Jesus ought to give us the last word on hell. Because in fact... Hell is Jesus' last word on evil. So today I want to do three things. I just want to look at a popular caricature of hell, examine that, and then look at uh, a biblical understanding and then relate it to just four ways that impacts our lives. First, the caricature of hell. Uh, This far side comic captures the notion of this underground torture chamber where look what he's saying. He's saying essentially, oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. You have these like devils who are tormenting them and they thought of everything. And it's this picture, uh, this caricature that hell is this underground torture chamber, this subterranean Guantanamo Bay, this underground Chateau d'If where mostly innocent characters are tormented against their desires. And it's a common caricature. Notice the phrase, they thought of everything, as if there is a they that run hell, imposing unpleasant and undesired experiences on victims who would otherwise prefer a different existence. Uh, And it follows a storyline that runs like this. When I die, I will either go up to heaven or I will go down to hell. But notice that that storyline has nothing to do with God. It's actually just all about me. And there it is for you. There's earth, and then there's heaven and hell. Uh, So the question is, as we wrestle into this theology of hell, is is that true? Is this the storyline we find in the scriptures? And the answer is not even close. Um, So to understand the basic theology of hell, you have to have a healthy grasp on the storyline of all of scripture. And so, first of all, let me ask you a question. Can anybody tell me how many verses in the Bible you will find the word pair heaven and hell. How often do you think that word pair shows up? More than a hundred times? Hands for that? All right. Yeah, it actually shows up zero times. This is not a word pair that shows up, at least in the NIV. There's like an obscure King James bizarro translation. But, um, But what word pair do you get most of the time? Anybody guess? Heaven and earth, yeah. In fact, that word pair shows up in over 200 verses. 219, depending on your English translation. And so the word pair, heaven and earth, is an emphasis because it is the marriage of God's sphere and our sphere that the Bible is revealing to us. Heaven is unambiguously, throughout Scripture, the the place of God's presence, the place where his will is done. Earth is the place also of God's presence, but it is the place where his will is both done and contested. And so think of a a moment of Jesus' own prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on 
earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus is praying in this marriage of heaven and earth. The, the two were created to be in perfect harmony. Shalom, right? This, this perfect peace. But although heaven and earth are made to be together, they have been torn apart. And, and so the biblical story shows us that sin has literally torn heaven and earth. That, that humanity, much like Luke's uh, prodigal son, has demanded its inheritance, the earth, demanded its independence, we'll eat this fruit because in doing so we will declare uh, what is right and wrong for ourselves, and then squandered it on selfish living. That's essentially Genesis 1 through 11. We want our inheritance, the earth. We want our independence. Leave us alone. Thank you very much. And then watch us unravel into injustice and violence and destruction. And so sin is this fundamental move away from God. And in the story of Scripture, uh, sin is essentially saying to God, leave me alone. That's, that's what I want. Hell isn't God sending people somewhere against their will. Hell is, in fact, biblically getting exactly what I want. It is God finally giving me up to be left alone by him. This uh, is seen in the Pharisees, for example, in Jesus' own day. Um, it's seen in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They refuse to depend on God for his grace and his mercy and, in fact, they reject God, not by their very bad deeds, like we see in Genesis 1 through 11, but they reject God by their good deeds. And it's their posture of saying, look at how good I am, depend on me. And so Jesus can say to the religious elite that they make their converts twice a son of hell as themselves. So, hell is the sphere of self-will. It's the sphere of those who say, not your will, God, but my will with their hearts and their lives. In the biblical picture, hell is currently aflame on earth. Let me give you three examples from the New Testament. The first we find in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying, essentially, that it is better to be reconciled to your enemy than to remain angry at them, lest we be in danger of the fire of hell. So in other words, hell is unleashed through unrighteous anger, which means every time I fail to check my response to one of my children and I show an unkind response of unbalanced anger, I reveal far more about hell than I do about God. Jesus says again, it is better to cut sin off at its source rather than look lustfully at a person. Right? Lest our whole person is consumed by hell, he says. So lust, our, uh, the, the abuse and misuse of our sexuality, the objectification of a person tears a rift between heaven and earth. Most of us in this room would recoil at the horror uh, of modern day sex trafficking around the globe and yet Jesus says I take this far more seriously than you because the root of the hellish injustice that we find around the globe is actually found in lust lodged in a heart James 3 says that our words unleash the power and force of hell unless our tongues are tamed he's, he's saying hell's destructive force is unleashed through us that when I gossip about my coworker at the water cooler being so obnoxious, I am breathing hell into the office. It's a picture James gives us of naive campers thinking they're merely roasting marshmallows in the woods only to find they're unleashing a wildfire that burns down the whole state. This is what anger and lust and words do. 
And so the biblical picture of hell isn't that it's underground. It's that it's under our skin and in our hearts. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said the line separating good and evil passes not between countries, not between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the middle of every human heart. But the good news is that the biblical story doesn't end with a rift between heaven and earth. They're meant to be together and God will overcome sin and death and evil to do it. And so it's a story ultimately of hope and redemption. The, the story of scripture ends with a marriage of heaven and earth. In fact, it's a, it's a wedding that literally kicks the hell out of the earth. That's the picture that we get in scriptures. It's a biblical story that ends with a wedding of redeemed humanity and the Lamb, the crucified Messiah King who's triumphed over the destructive powers of sin and death. And for heaven and earth to be wed forever, there has to be some kind of expulsion of evil for the sake of creation. See, as heaven meets earth, hell must be cast out. A good God would protect his good creation and evil has to be cast aside. And this is where Jesus' word for hell that he uses in the Gospels is pretty helpful in understanding what's going on here. The caricature is that hell is down. But where, where is hell? If you were a first century Jew and had an iPhone, you could literally um, use your Maps app and get to a physical location um, that Jesus referred to as Gehenna. Right? And so the Gehenna is this place. Jesus' main word for hell, he sometimes uses the word Hades, but it usually doesn't mean hell. Hades is um, the New Testament equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol, which you get in the Psalms and other places, and that just basically means the grave or the sphere of the dead. So if you're not confused yet, you might be now. Um, so, But Jesus' main word for hell itself is Gehenna. And so when you get tr- cut off in traffic, you can just yell, what the Gehenna? And uh, you'll be fine. So, but to, uh, to get the proper picture of what Jesus means when he talks about Uh, For example, in Matthew 10.28, he says, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. And what is he talking about? He's talking about Gehenna. And if you want to understand Gehenna, you have to have the Old Testament in mind. Um, Gehenna was, on one hand, in Jesus' day, the trash heap, the burning trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem. But on the other hand, throughout the Old Testament, this, this is the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom has two primary associations. Both of them are not good. The first association is idolatry. In the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom is the place where Israel goes to cheat on God. Um, Josh Butler wrote a brilliant book called Skeletons in God's Closet. He's a pastor over at Imago Dei. I'd recommend, if you want to read more on this topic, um, take a look at this. This is an exploration of these things that look like skeletons in God's closet that are actually pointers and signposts to his goodness. But um, Butler says that the Valley of Hanom was the cheap motel outside the city where Israel cheated on God with her other lovers, sought the gods of the nations, the false gods, and worshipped them there. But along with that idolatry comes the second association, which is injustice. Israel also went to the Valley of Hanom to kill its children. It was a place frequently associated with child sacrifice. So not only did uh, Israel go to the Valley of Hinnom to cheat on God, it also, she also killed God's children there, children there. Listen to Jeremiah 32, where he says, They built high places for Baal in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. 
though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing, and so make Judah sin. So in other words, this Valley of Hinnom is a giant signpost that Israel has been unfaithful to God and unjust toward one another. And this, my friends, is the backdrop, the Old Testament backdrop to Jesus' use of the word Gehenna, the trash heap outside the city. And what it suggests is that hell is cruel, but the cruelty of hell isn't God's doing. That the fires of hell are lit by human hands, not divine ones. Butler, again, says to blame the cruelty of hell on God is like an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the pain of his addiction. And so the Gospels present Jesus as this triumphant king who returns to Jerusalem to kick sin out of the city, to kick the valley of Hanom out away from his people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, means Yerushalom, God's peace. And so if God's peace is to rest there, Gehenna, which wants inside, has to be kicked outside. Jesus, the king, has to kick the hell out of the city. And sin is always opposed to God's good intentions. That's just how it works. God's good intentions are... um, I'm sorry, I should say that evil has... Uh, one desire, and that is to uh, unravel the whole world. But the picture the Bible gives us is this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, this wedding of heaven and earth, where the new city, the new Jerusalem, has wide open gates. Night and day they're open, with God's shalom being available to all, where we find people from every nation there worshiping God, thriving in his presence, and flourishing in his shalom. But sin gets kicked out because it's a cancer that left to its own devices would distort and attack shalom at every turn. So to get what Jesus is saying is to grasp the fact that he wants evil out of his good creation as badly and desperately as a mother wants leukemia out of her toddler. And it's there in the Valley of Hinnom. He'll leave it alone and he'll let it have its way. But he'll block it off so it can no longer corrupt what's inside. Which brings us to this point that uh, that hell is actually a boundary. It's a it's a blocking of the spread of evil. It's something that God, in His merciful goodness, sets a boundary on. Uh, again, C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He has this allegorical uh, story called Pilgrim's Regress, where there's this character John, and he's traveling into the life of the landlord's kingdom, that is God and His kingdom, and he has this question about the black hole, i.e., hell, and the landlord. He says, if he's so good and so kind, why is there a need to add a black hole? It's a question about the landlord's goodness, his character. Is he really good? This is what John's guide says. He says, the landlord does not make the blackness. A black hole is blackness enclosed, limited. And in that sense, the landlord has made the black hole. He has put into the world a worst thing. But evil of itself would never reach a worst For evil is divisive and could never in a thousand eternities find a way to arrest its own reproduction. If it could, it would no longer be evil, for form and limit belong to the good. It says that the walls of the black hole are a tourniquet around a wound through which the lost soul else would bleed to a death she never reached. It is the landlord's last service to those who would let him do nothing better for them. So what Lewis is getting at is he's saying that uh, the nature of evil is to consume. 
something St. Augustine said was that uh, evil isn't a substance itself. It's just a corrosive. God creates good things, and evil is this aggressive corruption. Uh, God doesn't create evil. He creates good things, but he doesn't corrupt them. Evil can't create things, but it can only corrupt. And so God's final mercy is to put a limit on Gehenna, the Gehenna that wants in the city of God. And so... It also needs commenting, too, on the two metaphors that Jesus, is, Jesus uses uh, to describe the phenomenon, phenomenon of hell. The, the first is fire and the other is darkness. And virtually all scholars would agree that fire and darkness are not literal but metaphorical. Even Jonathan Edwards, uh, the, you know, the, the great um, sinners in the hands of an angry God preacher, uh, points out that the language of hell in the New Testament is symbolic. But he also points out that... Um, when metaphors are used in the Bible to, for spiritual things, they fall short of the little truth, which is to say that uh, the metaphor is not exactly a comfort for us. So what are the symbols for then? Um, they're vivid pictures of what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation, from the separation from God's presence, and fire refers to disintegration of being separated from what actually holds us together. In other words, hell teaches us how much we're made for God, how, how we are utterly dependent on God's presence for life and wholeness. And so the worst possible condemnations that Jesus can offer is found in Matthew 25, where he says, away from me, I never knew you. Sin, according to Isaiah 59, excludes us from God's face. Sin removes us from what holds our life together and sustains us. Paul's words in Acts 17 describe God as the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Psalm 16 says that it's in his presence that there is joy and eternal pleasure. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. And I'm still with you, apparently. I'm really looking forward to a nap. But, in fact, uh, Matthew 10:28 is this moment where Jesus speaks of being destroyed in hell and he uses a Greek verb that doesn't mean to be annihilated but to be totaled like a car that you've wrapped around a phone pole um, it, it's something that's no longer uh, good for its intended purpose and so a totaled human is, is not somebody who's being tortured by external fire but it's a soul that loses its coherence that utter, utterly loses its ability to give and receive joy a soul that is utterly turned inward and unable on its own choice to turn toward God and it's this privation of good and the decomposition of what it means to be human that is beautifully illustrated in another one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Great Divorce, where Lewis says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So how do we respond to all of this? This picture of heaven invading earth to kick the hell out of hell being a place of ultimately losing our true self, of getting our own way, of the doors of hell being barred from the inside. Well, first of all, four, just four quick things. The first is this, that the Bible's harsh message about hell uh, is overwhelmingly outmatched 
by God's infinite goodness and mercy. That the Bible reveals a God who is unrelenting and incredibly patient in his pursuit of people who are rebellious. There are no, there are no conditions other than to trust him and receive his grace. He doesn't wait for humanity to get it right before he accepts and redeems. He waits for us to trust him and accept his goodness and his atoning death for us. Uh, when, when we lose sight of his omniscience, the fact that he knows all, when we lose sight of his justice, that he does what's right, when we lose sight of his patience, we'll always make hell a caricature that makes God the bad guy. But the reality that the scriptures point out, and I think we all know intuitively, is that we're not more merciful than God. I mean, who will say that Jesus is far more barbaric than ourselves? I mean, the author of love, the one who willingly and joyfully gave his life for people who hated him. Are we we really going to say he's more barbaric than we are? Are we really going to say we're more merciful than he is? Of course Of course it doesn't stand to reason. What more can we ask of this God than to do what he's already done to extend his mercy? The second kind of takeaway here is that the warnings about hell found in the Bible are are the smelling salts that we need. They're not opiates. Uh, Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, right? It's lulling the people to sleep so that way the powers can control them. Uh, But what we find in in Scripture is that the hell is a wake-up call. It's a smelling salt to idolatry and injustice and inhumanity. It it motivates justice, not escapism. The doctrine of hell is a smelling salt to point us to where we are ultimately and fully held together and made most human and most alive, which is in the presence of a God who loves us. It's a smelling salt that also lets us cultivate compassion for others who are held captive by the powers of hell. It's a a smelling salt to the seriousness of sin and its trajectory in our life unless we allow the Lord to root it out and redeem us. We should be horrified to think of what life for eternity would look like if we only got our way. J.I. Packer says that Scripture sees the self, uh, hell as a self-chosen. It appears as God's gesture of respect to human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or to be without God forever worshiping themselves. So, It's a smelling salt, friends. Um, thirdly, it reminds us that we have an awesome privilege of partnering with God in bringing his rule, of pronouncing his kingdom and shaloming the world with him. If hell is the disintegration of human life, if hell is all about the undoing of what's good, then the church has the awesome privilege of partnering with God and shaloming, of re-putting back together his world through servanthood and love and uh, through proclamation of the gospel. It's about choosing to partner with God in bringing his shalom in every sphere of our lives, starting in your own life with a ripple effect out. See, we should be bringing more wholeness and integrity and healing and hope to our world as we partner with God in humanizing and shaloming. And we get to join him in shaloming the hell out of the world. You can take that with you for free. Um, Lastly, hell teaches us how much uh, Jesus Christ loves us. 
and the extent of what he did for us. Again, in Matthew 10, Jesus says that no physical destruction can be compared to the spiritual decomposition of hell, which is losing the presence of God. And yet, the Gospels seem to indicate that's exactly what Jesus endured on the cross, that Jesus lost that face of God, the presence of God, in a profound way. When he can identify with the psalmist and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he, he experiences the burden of all sin. Unless we come to grips with this terrible doctrine of hell, we'll never fully grasp the depths of Jesus' love for us. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, If our debt for sin increases into eternity, yet only after three hours Jesus can declare it is finished, we learn that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. See, we meet a God in Jesus who won't subject his creatures to anything he himself won't endure, and yet he'll endure it so that we won't have to. It costs Jesus something to love us. In Hebrews 10, or 12, sorry, I lost it. Um, you know, if you know. Um, he says that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Is that 10 or 12? Thanks, 12, sorry. Um, John 10 says he does so willingly. It's love that we see demonstrated in Jesus against this backdrop of his endurance of the worst possible undeserved hell so that you and I can have the presence of God and the fullness of his undeserved blessing. He endures hell and says, you're worth it. You're worth it so that you can be with me. So when you see that kind of self-sacrificial love, it changes the entire conversation, doesn't it? It changes the entire conversation around because he's already endured it so that we can be put back together and be with him forever. So we're going to go to the table here um, in a moment as Ali leads us. And I want to encourage you, friends, to come and contemplate his immeasurable, gracious love for the world. Ask the Spirit of God to give you the smelling salts that you need today, the salts of his grace. Ask for power and wisdom to further step into shaloming his world Shaloming the hell out of it with him. Worship Jesus here at the table because he's worthy. We pause and go, you're, you're the worthy one. And, and it's in the worshiping of him that our lives are put back together and made whole. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for an amazing grace. We shudder at the thought of getting what we want, Lord. Teach us to love what you want the freedom of what you want rather than the captivity of what we want left to ourselves. Change our desires from the inside out as we come and we worship you at the table, the place that declares you've provided all by your grace. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.